All right. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. So I can tell that either people came to first service or they just went and barbecued. Okay. All right. No confessions because they're just not here to confess. So, yeah. So real quick, um, have you guys been keeping up with current legislation at all with the, uh, the gender dysphoria thing, kids struggling with their gender and all that? So California has recently passed legislation that um, if you uh, disallow in any way your child to get gender-affirming care, it's basically considered child abuse. Your children can be taken from you. Uh, that legislation is now in Washington. And uh, it probably will... I mean, the governor is eager to sign it, uh, but this is a petition uh, to, to not do that. And so uh, we have all of these uh, for you to sign. Uh, they're out on the, 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 as you go out of the auditorium, it's to the right on the tables there. We want to feed them as many signatures as possible. Um, our culture right now is being taught that the government, that their jurisdiction stretches beyond what God has given them and it extends to the family. It does not. Okay? God did not allow government to do that, uh, just as he didn't allow them to infringe upon the church. And uh, so if you have questions about that theology, um, I'm all into it. I can show you from the scriptures that when God designed the family, the church, and the government, they're all distinct entities. And, uh, and crossover has to be extremely rare, and uh, this is not one of them. And so to protect not just our kids from this moral insanity, but all the kids of our state, they, they bear the image of God. They're sacred to God. They should be sacred to us, and so we want to protect them. Amen? So if you would, please sign. We have a whole bunch of them. Um, and then also, I, I'm praying about how to uh, respond to this. But if you've been, especially our moms, if you've been to the library of late, uh, whether the Centralia or Chehalis, you notice that the aisles are filling up with, with the, uh, the LGBTQ and pride material. And uh, they have pamphlets out for your children to take. Uh, so they are, they're trying to evangelize our kids. Uh, our kids are off limits. They're not allowed to poach them. And uh, that's a tax. A lot of that is uh, funded by taxpayers. And I, I think that we should communicate somehow um, to them. I don't know how yet to do it. I'm praying about it. But I want to do it winsomely. And I want them to understand that this is off limits. Amen? So pray with me in that regard. And let's come together and and take some, some action. All right? Okay. We're in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, let me review with you. I know that our... Because uh, verse 13 to the very end is kind of like a whole section that is supposed to be held together. Last week it was interrupted, unfortunately. And uh, so I want to give us a review uh, so that we can keep it all together and, and try to feel the gravity of what is happening, what Jesus wants us to uh, to experience in all of this. So, as we know from the narrative, from the context of the Gospels, that things have been heating up uh, between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Prior to now, um, it was the Pharisees that had beef with Jesus, but more recently, uh, and for their own reasons, the Sadducees have begun to get involved. Okay? For the Pharisees, it was a dispute that had the appearance of being a th theological matter, although it was really motivated by their, their jealousy. Okay? 
the, the people in northern Israel, around the Galilee especially, they had abandoned the Pharisees for Jesus. Jesus was loving them. He was healing their sicknesses, and he was teaching them with authority. And so the Pharisees, they just, they just couldn't handle that. For the Sadducees, it was a more of a matter regarding their financial stability that depended on a stable relationship with Rome. Uh, but Jesus was looking, you know, too much like a rival to Caesar, okay? And, and bringing a Messiah king on the scene in Israel uh, could put all of their comfort at jeopardy. So they, they had beef with Jesus too. And so we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who typically don't get along, uh, that they've ganged up on a common enemy. And uh, what they've done is they've tried to gang up on him and discredit him in front of the people. But in our, our, our last section where we talked about that, Jesus turned it all on uh, its head. He confronted their wickedness and he did it publicly. Okay? And then he confronts them. He calls things as they are. And then he just leaves. He leaves them to think about it. He leaves the people to consider all of it. And then what Jesus did is he brings uh, from there, he brings his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is the, the northernmost boundary of Israel. It stood, uh, as it were, as a, a symbol, but even uh, very literally so as the boundary, this gateway to the pagan world and beyond. Um, and in, in, a, in kind of a, even in a foreshadowing manner, um, Jesus is looking forward. Uh, this is what this place would be where the disciples must breach in order to get to the pagan world to bring the gospel to it. So beyond this border really was Satan's domain. It was, it was the gates of hell, as it's, as it's called. Okay? And, uh, and it was there that Jesus, the Son of Man, as he called himself, he asked his disciples about his identity. Who, who do you say that I am? And Jesus knew that the most important thing about his disciples then and the most important thing about disciples now is what we believe about him. And that matter had to be settled at this point because things are changing as we're going to get into today. So what a person actually believes about Jesus really sets the course of the rest of their life. So Jesus inquired. And we know that Peter, he responded uh, really under divine revelation saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's interesting that in this Short conversation, the short time together, Jesus' office and his nature come to bear. Jesus is the son of man. He's the Christ, the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. So just in that, there's the two natures, divine and human in one person. The God-man, as uh, theologians have said in the past, except they use fancy words like hypostatic, but he's the Messiah. He's the savior of the world who alone can you know, sustain and protect his church from the onslaught of hell's vengeance. And as soon as Jesus established his identity among these men, he then begins to confront them with his mission. He must go to Jerusalem, he says. He must suffer many things. He must be killed, and then he must be raised the third day. So in other words, because of who Jesus is, and because of his role of redemption among the, the persons of the Trinity, this is what he must do. This is who I am. This is my mission. This is why I came. And of course, Satan was aware completely, I think, of the Father's plan to bring Jesus to his death, his resurrection, 
that he would provide atonement for man, and in that he would put Satan and his dominions to shame, which is just the first step in Satan's demise. So as we looked at, uh, Satan toys with Peter in hopes to keep Jesus from his destiny, from the redemption of man and his victory over darkness. But Jesus, of course, even though it was brought through Peter, one of his beloved friends, he was not fooled and he was unwavering in his commitment to his father. And it's at that point we, we come back to the text and things get very serious. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to try to regain the whole context. So I'll start in verse 13 and we'll read to the end. I failed to tell first service. I'm going to read through verse 28, but I'm going to save verse 28 for next Sunday as we go into chapter 17. So verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, that is the Messiah. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works." Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, truly like a, a double-edged sword, it cuts both ways. It gets to the heart of the matter, and Lord, we just pray that your words would, would reach our hearts. Give us ears to hear, and Lord, help us. Give us the grace to respond as you intend. Lord, we love you, and, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Turn back with me, if you would, to verse 24. want to address this as I believe Jesus meant it. I think that uh, the verse before us has somewhat become uh, even a cliche, and that if you wear a cross around your neck, that you've somehow fulfilled the text. Uh, that is not so. Uh, it's definitely not what the disciples heard that day, uh, as we'll talk about. But um, So in the whole context... You know, Jesus has basically communicated, this is who I am, and so this is what I must do. And if you're fo to follow me, you must do the same. He said to them, 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If if you desire to come after me, there are three things you must do. I say must because all three of these are in the imperative form. They're commands, three commands. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. You must follow me. And what he's saying is, I'm on my way to Calvary, the mountain on which he would be crucified. Okay? Not only will Jesus not be deterred from his mission, he's saying everyone who desires to be his disciple must do as he does, at least in some sense. And it begins with removing self uh, from the throne of our lives, as it were. Self can no longer be the lead. Self has to be denied. He has to be denied. So let's talk about self-denial. I'm sure that you get up in the morning and the first thing you want to think about is denying yourself. How can I be second or how can I just be way less? So denying oneself to, uh, for us, being broken by sin, uh, having our minds distorted by sin, uh, it's a tall order. It requires more really than us taking second place or being second in the order of priority. Uh, Part of the reason I say that is uh, it's not uncommon for people to say to be second is what Jesus means. But Paul says to consider others, plural, as more important than yourself. If he said consider someone else to be more important than you, that would make you second. But he says others, plural. That means everyone else. So you're, you're last among seven billion. Are we at eight billion now on planet Earth? We're growing pretty fast. Yeah. So it's not just simply second. Self-denial places us below others. And this is a problem for self because in reality, self is our all-consuming passion. It is. Self undergirds all of our motives. Self is the object of our deepest affection. The one who captivates our interests. The one we feed and nurture, clothe and cherish, protect and serve. Because as you know, self is number one after all. The most important person. To illustrate the degree of love we have for ourselves, Jesus said that we love ourselves so much that if we were to take the love that we have for ourselves and bestow it on others, we would fulfill the loftiest of God's commandments. That's what he teaches. I mean, after all, that is what love your neighbor as yourself means. To love your neighbor as you already love yourself. The person we love most is the person Jesus expects us to deny to refuse, to reject. What does that look like? And who really wants to investigate anyway? Yeah. Well, there's a few examples in scripture that, that stand out. There's many examples, especially in the life of Christ. You know, one, he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Of course, he's the only one that can give his life as a ransom, but everybody can give their life in some sense. But some of the examples that stand out to me simply because of their degree are these. When, when Paul was, you know, he's on his way back to Jerusalem for the very last time. He calls for the elders of Ephesus. He doesn't actually go into the city because he doesn't want to be deterred or distracted from where he's wanting to go. So he calls the elders outside and he told them that he was returning to Jerusalem. And he says, not knowing the things that would happen to him there. But he says that since I've been determined to return every city that I go to, the Holy Spirit has come to me and testified that there's going to be problems. 
Because in Jerusalem, Paul is a wanted man and the level of hatred for him in Jerusalem is it's bad. And so the Holy Spirit testified to him in every city, everywhere he went, the chains and tribulations awaited him. And then Paul gives his response to all of this. He says to the elders, none of these things move me. I'm totally unmoved by what I know is coming. And he says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And he says, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Did you catch that? None of these things move me because I do not consider my life dear to myself. That I would be in chains, that I would be in prison or worse, it doesn't matter to me because I haven't so elevated my life that it would bother me. That's interesting. And he says, I've done all of this so that I can maximize my joy. So he's saying that the denial of myself to not think too highly of myself, to not think dear of myself. He says, that's what brings me the most joy. Paul nailed it. That's what this is about. To deny self is to bring joy. This guy knew what it was to deny himself. He placed the call of God, the ministry of the gospel above his own life, his own desires, his own comforts. He knew that if he was going to live this life for Jesus with joy, he's going to have to get self out of the way. Because no one can serve God and self. No one. It's impossible. I think self is by far the greatest form of idolatry there is. The other example in scripture that stands out is found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, where the saints are being persecuted by Satan. And this is what it says. It says, but they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. It's interesting. It's, a, it's the exact same concept as Paul. Their lives weren't so important that they would spare themselves, that they would compromise, but they would go to their death because it was far more important to follow Christ, facing death for the glory of God through the blood of the lamb because they did not love their lives to the death. If you love your life, you will afford it every comfort you can. You will avoid suffering, even if it's for Jesus. And sin will eventually go unbridled in your life. It will. You will protect your reputation and many other things, and you will eventually compromise the faith because being comfort, comfortable, being popular, being accepted, being whatever will take precedence over everything. But if you do not love your life, you will spend it. You will give it to the right things, most of all the glory of God and then to others. And Paul and so many others in the history of the church will demonstrate that this is where actually real joy is found. The last example I want to give is 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Paul said, listen to this. He says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved by you. The more gladly, the more joyfully I will spend and be spent for your souls, even though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved by you. You see, because the great joy is in the denial of self and the obedience to Christ for the sake of others. Paul says, that's where my joy lies. It doesn't lie in getting something back from the people I serve. The joy I get is from just serving Christ, from being loyal to him, 
Paul desired to follow after Christ. He wasn't following after the appreciation of people. To, to love people for the glory of Christ, that's fulfilling. But to love people for what is reciprocated, <laughs> good Lord, that can be. I mean, you want to talk about living in a roller coaster. Yeah, crazy. Paul could love and serve and continue to serve regardless of their lack of reciprocation because he was following Christ. He wasn't going to dishonor Christ because they were unloving. Paul was going to bring glory to Christ no matter how people responded to him. He would just keep loving, keep serving because it was all unto the Lord anyway. You guys, the the love of self is a deadly addiction, but to love God above all else and to love one's neighbor as we love ourselves is to live as Christ, to to glorify God and and really to, to live in joy. That's where it's at. We think it's the opposite because it's the deceitfulness of our flesh. But it's, it's truly by giving ourselves away, by denying ourselves. You know, the same sort of self-denial is necessary when it comes to absolutely everything that God requires of us. It's not limited to or only revealed in mission work or persecution. God's call upon the Christian is a life that is maturing. It's, it's actually growing in self-denial. It has to be because uh, we, just, we just can't do it. All, just suddenly. How many of you guys have, have succeeded at just completely denying yourself in every context of living? Yeah, what's wrong with you guys? This is, just, this is elementary. It's easy. One of the greatest exercises in self-denial is parenting according to the scriptures. You know, training our children day in and day out in the, the admonition of the Lord to those with contrary wills and personalities requires years of sacrifice of self-denial. And the more we get over ourselves and do all things unto the Lord, rather than for what our children will reciprocate, the more joy we have in it. It's true. If you live for what your children will reciprocate, what happens when they don't? Where does your joy go? It goes down. It's tanked. You know, truly living for the glory of God in an ungodly workplace where you are intentional to reach those around you, you know, to winsomely address error and share the gospel, risking your livelihood and your reputation, that requires a lifestyle of self-denial. It does. And living with an ungodly or unbelieving spouse requires the rejection of self and making the other person of greater value than yourself. I mean, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6, he actually prescribes instructions for how to live in such a scenario. Paul does a little bit in 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 16. And if anybody knows about what it is to be self-denying in marriage, it was Hosea. Hosea. I mean, I'm glad it was Hosea, not me. Some of you are like, I haven't read Hosea. It's in the Bible. It's a very small book. It's a, it's a hard book to read. I think of couples in the same scenario, mostly women in the first few centuries of the church. When you look at how women were thought of before the gospel permeated the Roman Empire. It's disgusting how they thought of women. But many of these women were coming to faith in the first three centuries of the church, and they were married to pagans. That is a life of self-denial and sacrifice. Yeah. As disciples of Christ, we are confronted with self-denial at every turn and every context of life. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, he commands, let them deny themselves. Now, I mean, it sure would have been nice if Jesus concluded there with his instruction. But with his divine prerogative, he 
He has more demands. I've said many times, everybody loves Jesus. They just don't like his demands. Take up your cross. Now, you know, cross-bearing in the first century uh, under Roman rule was no joke. No joke. It was for Rome one of the most effective ways to intimidate those that they had conquered in order to keep them in check. Adding to the intimidation, it was, it was absolutely humiliating. It was dehumanizing to the victim. Uh, they were typically stripped naked. They were beaten. And then they were fastened to the cross. Their death was often long and drawn out as the victim of the cross could hang there for hours and hours, even more than a day before they expired. Here in our text, Jesus used it as a figure of speech that was meant to establish a sense of sobriety in those listening, just as he, he, he intends that this morning for us. Now, it probably has less effect today because how many of you guys have witnessed a crucifixion? How many of you have stood in the foreground and someone is bleeding out on the cross? All the sights and the sounds and the smells. You know, a crowd that is gasping while parents, spouses and children, family members weep for the victim as they listen to their loved one cry out in misery and the Roman soldiers mocking them. You guys, for them, the mention of crucifixion brought with it all kinds of memories, images, and emotions. It was how the Romans currently were intimidating the Jewish culture. It was horrifying. It was heartbreaking. It was inhumane and disgusting. And it was to this that Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, he must take up his cross. He must bear this cruel instrument of torture, humiliation, and death. Well, this is different than what was happening before. You see, these men had left everything to be with Jesus, but following him from this point forward would not be the same. You know, counting the cost of one's association with Jesus was no longer just an issue of having no place to lay one's head. That was then, but things are changing now. Those who carried crosses were criminals. At least they were perceived to be by the Romans. But whether you were innocent or criminal, the, their end was the same. A miserable, humiliating death. Jesus, remember earlier, just, I mean, in, in the context here, in the conversation, we're talking seconds or minutes that Jesus had just mentioned that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed. But now he throws something else into there. To understand the elders and the chief priests of the Jews, they did not have the authority to crucify anyone. The Jews didn't crucify. They didn't have the power to execute anyone. The Romans had taken that away. So the power to crucify resided in the hands of a single entity. That was the oppressor. That was Rome. So whatever trouble Jesus was talking about, it was going to involve both the state of Israel and the empire of Rome. The stakes have gotten higher. It's different now. If Jesus didn't have their attention before, he has it now. The figure of speech regarding the cross, it has hit home. But he goes further, follow me. Jesus was beckoning them to go with him and die. Not only was he going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, he's telling them, you must come with me. You must pick up your instrument of death and you must follow me to the place of death. That's Calvary. That's Calvary. It's the place of the skull where the skulls of dead men had been scattered. That's the skulls of Jewish dead men who the Romans had tortured and murdered. 
in order to get everybody else to behave. And Jesus says, I'm going there to do just that. To truly follow Christ, one must die with him. Okay, now here Jesus is using this literally of himself, but he's speaking spiritually for us. We must die to ourselves, to the flesh, to sin, to the world, to our will and our passions, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. And Paul, he understood this for himself very well. And he must have been looking back to what we're talking, what Jesus was talking about. But he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think it's too easy for us to think that Paul was describing the extraordinary Christian life. He wasn't. He's describing the normal Christian life. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, whosoever wants to come after me, he says, they must deny themselves. They must take up the cross and they must follow me. This is for absolutely everyone who wants to come after Jesus. This is This is harder to say, I think, today, but it's true in the text. It is a prerequisite for being a disciple of Jesus. Isn't that what he's saying? Anyone that desires to come after me must. He's making it a prerequisite. Yeah, we must die to our former life and take up the life that he has for us. We must die to our will and we must adopt his will for our lives. I can't think of a better way to describe a servant, someone who gives up, And they exchange their will for the will of their master. That's what this is all about. And then Jesus begins to explain why this is necessary, why it's important, why we must do this at all costs. He said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So a life pursued for self, a life that is independent of God and his will, a life lived for self and selfish pleasures leads to the permanent loss of life. But those who are crucified with Christ, surrendered their will to him, his commands, they've yielded to his word and wisdom. This is the person who truly lives. So the addiction to self leads to death, but life in Christ leads to joy everlasting. Isn't that what the psalmist says? That in your presence are pleasures forevermore for joy everlasting. You know, there is, I think, an important theology that we can, we can miss, and that's the fact that God has created us for pleasure. He's created us for pleasure. Now, sin distorts it all. It contaminates it and, and just messes everything up, but he created us for pleasure. He created us to, to experience joy. He did. And, you know, fallen people that are unredeemed, they can experience pleasure to a degree. They can experience love, and they can love. But when somebody is redeemed by the Spirit of God, he maximizes their ability to love. He maximizes their ability to be loved. And he maximizes their ability to experience pleasure and joy. He does. So yeah, the world is fooled. The unredeemed are fooled into thinking that their pursuits, that they're really experiencing all that there is. The deceitfulness of sin. But those that are in Christ experience all of that so much more, so much more. Jesus is calling us to give up what we think is the best way, to adopt his way that we might experience and find life as he intended. That's what he wants. The addiction to self leads to death. 
but life in Christ leads to joy everlasting. So that was the first thing of why we must die. But this is the second one for, he says, for what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So there is, of course, no profit to the man who temporarily gains everything that he's ever wanted, everything that he finds pleasure in, but then eternally lose his own soul. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the soul, is, as he's saying here at the end of the text, the soul is priceless. And if it is given up or if it's spent on worldly pleasures, he says, there's no amount of currency that can restore it. It's, it's lost. It's done. You know, Jesus knew this well, and his example is there for us back in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, when he was tempted by Satan. Satan took him up on a high mountain, mountain spoken of by Daniel, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give all of this to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. In other words, if you just give me your soul, I'll give it all to you. We don't have to do what, you know, Daniel predicted. You don't have to come and, and take it all that violence and bloodshed. So I'll just give it to you, but it'll cost you. It'll cost you. This quid pro quo was the soul of the son of God for the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus would have gained only for a moment what Satan would have taken forever. You know, Satan and the world will buy up our souls for very little and they will never sell it back to us. So in this game, there's no refunds. It's all for keeps. So as the psalmist would say, or the Proverbs would say, Above all else, guard your heart, guard your soul. There is no pleasure. There's no amount of fame or wealth or comfort. There's not a human relationship that comes close to the value of the soul. So if you want to save your soul, it must be offered up to God who gave it in the first place. And this must be done now, this present life. Because when it's done, it's done. And that's what Jesus gets at here. He says, for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Reward or repay. Reward is not always a positive thing. Amen? It's not. So the day is coming, and if you understand God at all, you know nothing can stop it. And I more than ever suspect that it's near. I pray that it is near. You know, if the world we live in grieves those who are less than holy, it must grieve the one who is infinitely holy. The world has certainly treasured up for itself wrath for the day of wrath and the vengeance of God, as Paul talks about in Romans 2. Peter says, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber, 2 Peter 2, 3. So Christ is coming for the wicked, but he's also coming to judge his people. Hebrews 10.30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He will. He's coming to judge, living the dead. God the Father, as Paul says in Acts 17, he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world, both the living and the dead, according to what is right. So it's the divine calendar, and the date is set. We cannot hasten it. We can't slow it down. It will come as the sovereign God has appointed it. It's coming. Every man will get what he deserves. No one will be treated unjustly. And all the facts will be laid bare. But he will judge the world by Jesus Christ when he returns to take his earthly throne. 
It's very interesting. You know, God had man judge Christ at the cross, and the Father has saw fit that Christ will be the judge of all men at the consummation, and from him none will escape. On the day he returns, he tells us in Matthew 25, he will return to the earth, he'll sit on the throne of his glory, and he will dispatch his angels to gather all of humanity. And he says in Matthew 25, he says, I will say to the righteous, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. But he'll say to the wicked and unbelieving, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the day of judgment is closer than ever and the people of this world live like it'll never come. And sadly, many in the church, they know that judgment is on the horizon, but they, they live like the world. They, they have not denied themselves, but they've unbridled themselves. They've not taken up their cross, but they've pushed it aside. They talk the talk, but they make no real attempt to really walk in step with Jesus. I think that one of the, the great failures and I can only speak in the West, really. But the failure of pastors is to preach on the judgment. Nobody talked about judgment as much as Jesus. And he is the pattern for preaching. Okay? I think in one sermon, uh, he mentions judgment 25 times. So don't get upset with me. I only did it like eight. Okay? But there's something in it that is important because every day for us is to be preparation day for judgment day. We're to live for the judgment. We're to desire to stand before the king whom we've served our whole lives and to give an account as stewards for what he's given us. Don't you want to stand before him and, and hear his voice say, well done, my good and faithful servant? I understand that, you know, just, just the thought of standing before him, I don't know if there's anything more dreadful, but neither is there anything as exciting. Really? I remember, you know, growing up and, I don't know, my mom having four boys by herself, she just had to trust the Lord. And we just had an affiliation for the most dangerous stuff. I did a wedding yesterday and my buddy, he had this shirt that said, don't follow me. I do really dumb things. And it has a scuba diver riding a shark. And I just thought that was me growing up. And I remember being driven both by the fear of what I was doing and the excitement that went with it. And I just, I just loved it. That's why we skied and we rock climbed and we... We just did everything that was just so fun. But I, I've come to think of the judgment as the same way. I mean, it's exhilarating, but it's frightening to stand before the king of the universe and give an account for oneself. But that's what the doctrine of judgment is, is to do for us. It's to help us to live with expectation. And Paul says that, that is my responsibility to teach every man, he says, and to warn every man that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The goal of the pastor, the goal of the father, the goal of the single mother is to prepare those under their care for judgment day. What a heavy responsibility. And so the warning is to go out, the, the instruction that if Christ does not rule the soul, the temporal pleasures it enjoys now will turn to eternal miseries at the judgment. This whole thing, Jesus isn't trying to scare his boys off. He's trying, by his grace, he's trying to beckon them to come and die that they might live. Because to deny ourselves, to take up a cross and follow Jesus, that is really to live. 
And I just think of the men and women over the centuries that have given their lives for Jesus. In our culture, we talk about, you know, what is feminine, what is masculine, and they, they've come up with this term of toxic masculinity. Really, it's just men expressing themselves as men, which I think is fine, I mean, in and of itself. But I think that manhood is expressed in guys that will go down on the corner of the street and preach the gospel. I do. I, I think of manhood and I think of fathers that, that give themselves to the teaching of their children and the sacrifice for them. That's manhood to me. That they don't care what anybody thinks, but they're going to live for Christ no matter what. They will obey him. That's manhood. That's, that's motherhood. A mother that is without a, a man in her life. And she has all these babies and she gives it all for them. And she doesn't care about what the world thinks, but she will train them. She will raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That's, that's doing it right there. So my admonition to you my encouragement to you, I think, is what is coming out in the text is do not waste another moment. As James says and Paul, the, the judge is standing at the door and he's coming. John says that we should be waiting for his appearing so that we will not be ashamed, ready for the day. It's exhilarating and it's fearful. It's the fearfulness of it that purges us. Amen? And it's the, the exhilaration that just helps us to look forward. We should look forward. It's coming. You may die first, or he may return, but we're not stopping it. It will happen, okay? Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. We will stand or fall based upon what we do. You've spoken, it's final. And Lord, there is nothing better than following you, than loving you, denying ourselves for your glory and for the sake of others. Lord, I pray for those that this is a new concept. I pray that, Lord, they would be determined that whatever they do, they'll obey you. But Lord, you're the one that said that if we lose our lives for your sake, we will find it. I pray that all of us would experience that every time, every day that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and walk in step with you. Lord, there is, it's good to follow the Lord. It's good. So Lord, be glorified as we do that. Grant us grace to do it more and more each day. Fill us with your spirit. Energize Lord, us in our weakness, because I don't want to deny myself, but I know it's good. So Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.